Welcome to Euros Harley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and what an episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front we have for you today. This is an episode that is simply quite special. Our guest has a seriously interesting and wide-ranging story to tell that covers global entrepreneurialism, business leadership, Western Australian gold mining, international relations, and extreme generosity. Our guest is Mr. Simon Lee A.O., the recent former chair and current non-executive director of ASX-listed Emerald Resources, stock code EMR. This, ladies and gentlemen, is one heck of a story. Simon, who was born in Malaysia and keeps his life fairly private, gives us his take on his decorated career. We talked to Simon about how he saved and scraped together enough money to travel to Perth to study accounting, and how he fell in love with this beautiful city. This led to an amazing life journey, including managing an international hairwig company, founding an Asia-Pacific high-profile events company, building a Hong Kong barge business, selling out of a medical company, and retirement at the age of 39. Then, the commencement of a strong and treasured relationship with Western Australia and the Western Australian gold mining industry. The story just gets better and better and includes household names of gold companies Samantha, Equigold, Regis and current success story Emerald Resources. Simon's principles and views on investing, his largely unknown history of enormous philanthropic contributions, including to some of the most well-known WA organisations, and his long-standing relationships with the likes of Sir Charles Court are all provided in an understated way, but with incredibly interesting detail. Add to this his role in establishing the WA Chinese Chamber of Commerce in the late 1980s and its important position in society. For this, Simon was awarded an Officer of the Order of Australia for his contribution to relations in this area. This is like a feature movie and will no doubt provide you a deep insight into another person's perspective. So without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the former Chair and current Non-Executive Director of Emerald Resources, and all-round great guy, Mr. Simon Lee. Simon, thank you very much for joining us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. And I will say it is an absolute privilege to have you on the show. I know you're a private guy and you've had such an amazing life and to be able to have a bit of time out with you while you're in Perth is is actually just fantastic. And I know it's taken a little bit to organise a time, but Thank you for taking some of your valuable time to join us. Thank you, Tim. I think it's a pleasure to have this opportunity to speak to you and perhaps explain certain things I do in life. Good on you. I'd just like to start, Simon. One of the key points around finding the front is learning a little bit about your background. Now, for the listener, Simon was born in Malaysia 
and he was born into what was at that point, Simon, a fairly financially challenged family. You know, you're in humble upbringing. Yes, I guess during that period, most people in Malaysia were not well to do, and we were at the lower end of it. But fortunately for us, my mum made sure that we all went to school, and I credit her for bringing our five sons through school. And we only finished our O levels, and I had to find our own way where we go from there. So you did primary schooling in Malaysia? Yes. And then your secondary schooling as well was in Malaysia? Yes. It was at the same school that followed through from primary into secondary. secondary. And we were the only school, I think, in the state that had A-levels. And our principal is, has always been an Englishman. We had one that was very strict. He was from the army, he was a guy called Bennett. Then the next one we had, Mr. Swales, who was an educationalist. He was very good. He made every one of us try to improve ourselves rather than get ourselves disciplined all the time. Right. <laughs> we move into the 1960s. So you were born in the early 1940s? Yes, I was born in 41. 41. And then in 1960, you started out as a teacher. Yeah, when I finished my O-levels, I took up a job as a temporary school teacher in a village school. Yes. There were two incidents there, perhaps I will talk very quickly. One of my students was always late for class. The class starts at 8 and he'll come in at about 8.39, sometimes even 9.30. And in those days, bear in mind I was only 17, 18 years old, I would cane him. He stick out his hand and I will cane him once and he just stared at me and blink. It didn't have any effect on him. I think it's because his, his hand was all thickened with all the work he works in the field. Then one day, the grandfather came to the school to talk to me. I was quite nervous. He said, don't worry, I just want to talk to you. And he explained to me that his grandson goes out at 6 a.m. in the field to work until about 9. He goes home, have a quick change, then he comes to school. And he says, really, he says, he is in school because the government says he must finish primary school. He says all the education to him is useless because he has to work in the field when he grows older. So that's one lesson. The second lesson, there was a very bright kid in the school, and I took him home to my it was a village school, so I took him to my hometown in Johor to take him around the best school to show him what education could be for him. Two weeks after that, or about a month after that, his parents invited me to their home for dinner. After a quick meal, they sent the kid out, and they said to me, you look around our house, this is all we have. He says, what you have done is indirectly made him very unhappy. He now aspires to want to further his education. Even if we sell everything we have, we can't even fund him for one year in school. I think that taught me a very big lesson in life. When you try to help someone, you may have to look at what the end result could be. Those lessons taught me a lot and probably changed my life in the way I behave later on. It gives us a bit of an insight into where you grew up. Your upbringing, was it along the same lines? Well, I 
would credit my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, for what I am today. She was always telling me right and wrong. I remember I have a very rich uncle who will do nothing for all of us. In our family, we have two streams, one that was very rich, one that was very poor. I came from the very poor side. Right. And I remember my grandmother speaking to me and what you wanted to do when you grow up. I said, I want to be doing good. I want to be contributing to society and all that goes with it. But I said, I don't want to be like my uncle. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about her son. Yes, yes. And she looked at me and says, well, then you have to get very rich like him and don't be him. She says, if you're poor, you say you want to help people. You can only do it with your two hands and your energy. But if you're rich, you can mobilize people like you to do a lot of the things that you aspire to do. When she said that to me, it didn't dawn on me what, what it meant. But as I grew older and I started to have a little bit of wealth, I began to understand the lessons she was teaching me. Yes. Your grandmother clearly had a pretty strong impact on you. Yes, she, she, she has. And I'm going to go in a little bit on a cultural thing. Every year we visit our ancestral grave, similar to Easter in the Catholic religion and all that. Yes. Where we visit the gravesite. And even at a very old age, even a few years ago, I'll sit at her grave and then talk to her. Yes. And I get a lot of personal satisfaction and inspiration from, by doing that, yeah. Oh. What about your mom and your dad? What were they doing through your upbringing? Well, my dad worked in the estate, helping someone run, actually helping my uncle run his estate. And I don't think my uncle did him very well financially or otherwise. All I remember as a kid is my dad never brought any money home. And it was only in later years that we found out that he used all his wages to help all the poor workers and we never had any money from his income. Although he comes back every weekend. And it was my mom who went to work to put us all to school. Right. And whereas all kids had pocket money, we only had 20 cents, which is the bus fare, 10 cents to go to school and 10 cents to come home. And if we wanted to have anything to eat, what we then do is to, to walk to school and walk home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Simon, it gives the listener and me a good insight into your upbringing. Tell me about growing up in Malaysia at that time. I guess growing up in Malaysia in those days was pretty good because there was no class distinction. As I was growing up in, in the village where I grew up, I think the natural instinct of being a leader was already in me, if I now can recall, because I seem to be leading uh, the group of kids to do whatever I want them to do. And funnily, because you're poor, you have to think of things to do that doesn't cost money. And that's when I took up running and sports because I would challenge all the other kids to sprint down 30 meters, 50 meters, yes. that kind of thing. And I end up being quite a good athlete. I represent my school, my state, and I played rugby for my school and I played rugby for the Asian Blues. Yes. Wow. So you must have been pretty handy. Well, I was quick. <laughs> I wasn't big. Uh, 
yeah, those, those were the days. I finished that, as I was saying, I was a school teacher for a year, and a lot of my schoolmates were coming to Perth to study accounting. And I tried to get my uncle to support me, and he wouldn't. And my elder brother, who was a technician, knew about it, and he made a deal with me. He says, if you can save enough for your fare and your first year fee, I will support you. I thought that was easy, and I, I smiled. I said, ah, oh, good. And finally, it was to save $2,000. After two years, I only had saved about 1006 and that was 1961. It clearly had an impact, Simon. You remember the 1006. Yeah, basically because my mum asked me around July, he says, how much have you saved? I said, I saved 1006. So she looked at me and said, gee, it's gonna, you're going to miss another year. So she gave me $1,000. And she said, you do not tell your brother I've given you $1,000. So when my brother came home from work, I told him I've, I've saved enough money. He looked at me and he, he, I could see in his <laughs> eyes he didn't believe me. <laughs> uh, but I think he, he knew it was perhaps to save a year. He says, okay, why don't you just go and apply to the college? So I wrote to Perth Tech through friends of mine who were already here in second year. And they accepted me, but I needed a bond, what you call financial bond. Yes. And we had to go to our neighbor for help because we were poor, so we never had saving that can show to the bank that we have enough. And fortunately for us, this neighbor of us agreed to do that. Yeah. Next thing I know, I was on a boat coming here to Perth. Why was Perth the attraction for your friends to come to study accounting? I think... It was the nearest Australian institution to Malaysia, right. Singapore. Yes, okay. And also, it was the institution accepted us just with our O levels. Okay. We didn't have to matriculate or anything. No, right. That makes sense. And so you got on a boat, supported by your brother, secretly also by your mum. Yeah. And, <laughs> and off you went. And that was the start of an adventure. Yes, I think... Perth has been a great influence on my life. I think Australia has a great influence on my life. I have a group of guys who are about my age, who are all at tech and uni with me, whom we meet in Singapore minimum once a month. In fact, the next meeting is on the 28th of this month. Right. And it's incredible they reminisce about those wonderful five years to spend in Australia. And... They contribute to what they are today is because of that five years in Australia. I think education in another country from the country you are born has a great influence on you because those are very impressionable years. Yes. Perth Tech was where you studied accounting. Was there a reason you decided accounting? Was it just because your friends were doing accounting? Or And I, I asked this question because your career – Forward from your accounting degree is phenomenal. And we'll go through this in a bit of detail. But accounting was pivotal in formulating your start. I think I, I chose accounting because, to be honest, it was the only faculty or any institution accepted me. <laughs> is <laughs> my, that right? My <laughs> first choice was law. Was it? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I was also I write a thesis because I, I applied to the inns in London. And one of them wrote to me and says, can you write two essays and give me the subject? 
after a month, he sent me a letter in reply. He says, we can't take you. He says, your English is just not up to scratch. <laughs> is that right? That's true. Gosh. The funny thing is, the first day I landed in Perth, I would, what you call, became an Aussie. I was picked up at Fremantle. Yes. It was about... From the port. From the port. Yes. At about 1.30, I got into Subi Rockaby Road. Instead of going home, the guy took me to a TAB, <laughs> where, where all the other kids I was going to live with was. So I went to a TAB and watched what they were doing, <laughs> not knowing what it was all about. And I asked the guy, I said, what are you all doing? He said, you see the thing two stroke one? That's if you put a dollar, you win two dollars. Then I think to myself, geez, so stupid guys. Why are they all buying all this two to one? There's a whole set 10 to one. So I put a pound, a quid in those days on the 10 to one and the 10 to one won. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, wow. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, that was the end of me. <laughs> You'd had the taste. Yeah. So, like I say, I began Aussie the first day. I was at TAB gambling, had a beer at a pub next door and a pie. And this is a great, this is a great place. <laughs> While I was here, I was taken to go and play rugby. All right. At Perth Base Water Club. And I want to say this because they asked what I've done in rugby. Yes. When I told them I played for my school, I played for my state and all that. So they said, we'll put you in an A team. So in the practice, we're doing all the practice pre-season. When the season starts, the captain said to me, he says, the B team needs a player, they're short of a player, would you like to help them? I said, sure. So I went to play in the B team. The second week came along, he says, Simon, he said, the C team is short of a player, would you go help them on the C team? I said, yes. The third week, he said the same thing to me. The C team still needs another person. I said, yes. And the fourth week, he said, would you like to stay on the C team? I said, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I think he could see. I just could not measure up in, <laughs> in the better grades. <laughs> still, you, it, what, a, what a fun time and way to meet people. Yeah, it was actually a fantastic club. Yes. They were so protective of us. There were a few Asian students playing for the Perth Base Water Club. And you know, you go into the field, there's someone that's always trying to bash you up. Yes. And when the captain and the coach see that we've been rough up quite badly, they'll switch position, take us out and move us to another position and put another good, strong Aussie guy against the other player. <laughs> yeah, we had a good time. I was very grateful because that was my first exposure to how team looks after each other. Yes. Simon, we'll get to this later in a bit more depth. But just on the surface, being a native Malaysian arriving in Perth, did you find it easy or was it a real challenge in terms of integrating? I didn't find that as a big problem. No. Basically because I went to an English school. Yes. And my exposure was to the English language. Well, there were a lot of other students who came here who went to Chinese school. They had a bit of a problem. Yes. And in our school, we also had social activities. So I understand what it was like to be involved in social circles. And I think, although I came from a very humble background, I had this natural instinct to want to be involved in things. Yes. During the the three years as a student, I became student president of the Accountancy Student Association. I was actually, I think, the only non-Caucasian in the Australian Youth Council. 
I was vice president of the WHR. So those are, I, to me, the instinctive things to do yes. for for student. And I wasn't like a greenhorn kid that went to school all the way and came into college. So for the listener, you can see that the journey has started. Your first major role, Simon, if we move into your career now, started out with all things wigs. And when you joined Fair Lady Wigs as a 28-year-old. That's right. And on the first week in… So this is Fair Lady Wigs based in Singapore that sold wigs to the world? Yes. I think, And just the wigs were made from hair. Human hair. Human hair generated from within Singapore and China? From all over the world, but predominantly from China. Okay. In those days, as you know, China was quite poor and every woman that combed their hair had a little basket where they keep their hair and then they're collected village by village and then sold and ultimately we buy them in Singapore. And that was a way they could, they could make money? Yes. And so Fair Lady Wigs manufactured the wigs and then their role was to distribute it to wherever they could. When I joined, I joined actually as a financial controller. So during the uh, training week, it just so happened the first day of work, the managing director was free, so he walked me around the factory. And as he was walking around with me, I was telling him, I said, why do you do this thing this way? He says, why? I said, I think if you do it this other way, there might be an improvement. And he looked at me and half thinking something wrong with me. <laughs> as, we, as we walked, he encouraged me. He said, what do you think here? And I just keep on talking. The second day, he told his guy he's going to take me around again. Then we went. And instead of putting me in accounting, he said, I'm taking you into operations, he said. He says, you're better off in operation. And I, I thank him because that's maybe that's the way my mind is. So I started as the operations manager. Within three months, I became the international operations manager. And then on the seventh month, I'm flying to London with him. And when we were on the plane, he asked, because at the airport, I could see him talking to my mother and my mum was crying and I was talking to friends say goodbye. Well, this would have been like one of your first trips into Europe, would it? Oh, my first trip on a plane. First trip on a plane, yeah. Right. That's why my mum was crying and all that. Because every, every time you would have gone back to Malaysia, it would have been by boat. Uh, yes. Yes. So he, when we got on a plane, he asked me, he says, your mother says you're supporting a brother in Australia and you're supporting a brother in New Zealand through university? I said, yeah. So he says, why do you do it? Is it something that you're compelled to do? I said, no. I said, it's just something I want to help my brothers. So he looked at me and said, your mom also say you give her your salary. I said, yeah. And he was quite amazed because I think he, his family was stuck in China. So he was quite emotional in, in that kind of aspect. Yes. So when the journey ended, we stopped in uh, Bahrain in those days, had a coffee with him. He says, everything your mom said, you confirm. I said, yes. Got back on the plane, we got into London, went straight into the London uh, office. When we got into the London office, he told the London MD, he says, this is Simon Lee, he's the International Operations Director. And I look at him and say, what? He just promoted me again. <laughs> and... He told them how much salary I was going to be paid in London. I said, no, I want to be paid in Singapore. He told me to just keep quiet. Basically, he told me in, in my dialect to shut up. 
<laughs> and I kept quiet. The, all the negotiation finished. He says we're going to go to go to sleep because we we just landed. But instead, he took me to lunch, and he says, "Why I use that title is so that he knows you have overriding authority over him." Yes, he said. But between you and me, he says you report to him. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I said, sure. What an amazing experience the wig business was for you because it gave you a global outlook, and it also, I mean, you were talking a large number of staff a large number of, of product lines and that sort of thing. And, and it gave you a really good start. Yes. Uh, well, there's one other funny thing that happened. Uh, it, I, I want to relate it because it, it's, it affects my thinking and my life. When I was there, first posted there, I would ask one of the staff to have dinner with me. He said no. I asked the next person the next day. He said no. And this went on. Almost everyone said no. No one said yes. So one of the girl, a girl called Margaret working in the store, said to me, he says, Mr. Lee, he says, you must invite us one-to-one. He says, everyone would think that we are buttering up to you. He says, you invite the whole lot of us. He said, we've got nothing against you. He said, that's just this thinking. So I invited the whole lot and everyone came. Right. And, and after that, it never be a problem that if one of them have have lunch or, or dinner with me. Yes, it's a psychological thing that I did I wasn't aware of. You see. So when I was based in London, I had overriding responsibility for the German operation. So I used to fly to Dusseldorf every month. Right. But on that side of it, it was just to look at the financials, the sales numbers, the statistic, nothing to do with the operation. Okay. Yes. And about two years into the project, there had some problems in Canada with the Canadian subsidiary. And I was asked to go to Canada to look at what was going on. When I got into Canada, I found that the president of the Canadian operation was fiddling. We didn't know the extent of the damage where people were paying him in cash. Small traders were paying him in cash and he was giving issuing credit not to offset the amount. And when I stopped police involvement, I negotiated with him to tell me the truth and all that. At the end of the day, it worked out it was only about $70,000. Yeah. So he was removed and I had the responsibility of looking after that operation until they find a replacement. So I speak to the Singapore head office. I said, when are you sending a replacement? He said, next month. So when the second month came up, he rang me and said, how's the operation going? I said, good. It's improved. The numbers are all good. He says, when are you sending a replacement? He says, another month. And this repeated until the fourth month. And of course, every month was getting better and better. So I said to him, I said, when is the replacement coming? I need to go back to London. He said, the replacement is not coming. You are the president of the Canadian operation. <laughs> so you were there. And at the age of 30, I became president of the Canadian company. So how long did you live in Canada for? I was in Canada for two, two and a half years. Wow. And then my youngest brother passed away. So there was nobody to look after my mum. Because at that time, I had the brother I was supporting in Melbourne, a brother starting in Dunedin, and my the other brother had just got a scholarship and has gone to Louisiana. Okay. So I was the only one to extricate myself, so I went back to Singapore. And when I got back to Singapore, the managing director who was very fond of me, who looked after me like like my bodyguard, you can say. You yes. Know? His younger brother had taken over, and I didn't get along with him. 
And he spoke to me and he says, what did my eldest brother promise you? I said, he promised me nothing. I said, you tell me what you want. So we negotiated. I said, no, I'm going to leave. So I left and I teamed up with two other guys who were in Perth who were students with me in accounting and another Australian guy called Ben Lehman. And we end up in the entertainment business. So this is the segue into the entertainment or promotional business for bands and events within Asia Pacific. Yes. As you know, the, in those days, you have uh, Robert Stigwood and Paul Dainty. Paul Dainty in Australia? Yeah, and Stigwood in London. Stigwood. Stigwood? They, yeah, Robert Stigwood. Yep. They would bring shows from England into Australia. Right. So we then stood in the centre to defray some of their costs to take those acts into Asia. And we did quite a few. We did uh, Lulu, Bee Gees, Middle of the Road, Hollies, you know, and non, non-pop things like the French Hell Drivers, Harlem Grubtrotters and all that. You know. <laughs> so you've gone from deep into the wig industry into promoting acts, bands, acts, events into... Asia on their way through from London to Sydney. You got a lot of stories that came out of that period. I know when we were talking offline, you you mentioned you you were looking to try and get some of the big acts through, and you know the likes of Muhammad Ali, Elvis, Tom Jones. What were one of the stories? The Elvis well, story. I think the Elvis one is the one that struck most. And we rang, uh, we had a phone, I had a speaker, then we rang uh, the colonel's colonel. But the colonel was the manager. Yeah. yeah. And we says, uh, says, who you are, we explain who we were, our organization. So he says, what are you offering? We says, a million US, because to us, a million is like a huge amount, you know. And the guy says, that's good, that's my fee. How much are you paying Elvis? <laughs> Gosh, it was expensive. <laughs> the four of us just went white. We says, what? And we said pleasantries and we hung up. We said, just be honest. There's no way we can do it. You know? And then you, you, you did get close to getting Muhammad Ali. Well, we got Ali. Yes. For an exhibition fight in Hong Kong just before his fight with Joe Bugner in Malaysia. And we had advertised the fight six weeks, I think, over radio, newspaper, most of them radio rather than TV, maybe one or two ad. And on the evening of the fight at five o'clock, in a stadium that can take 40,000 people, we only sold 600 tickets. 600 out of 40,000. And what did you committed at that point to the RLA management? Everything. Everything. So I did my quick calculation as accountant and all that. I said, if we call off the fight, we negotiated with Ali to call off the fight. He agreed straight away and he said, we have to pay him half his fee and all that. We said, no. So in the end, we end up taking the tap on all his expenses for his entourage and everything. And the, and the equipment was tons of equipment. So it cost a lot. The fight was called off. In my calculation, we wouldn't go broke. We will get back all the money from all the advertisers and all that. The advertisers refused to pay. Right. So I went to see a lawyer, and this lawyer said to me, he says, who happened to know me through one of my partners, he said, for a smart guy, he said, you really, really, really made a very stupid decision. 
He said, you could have become very rich. I said, how? Ali would never have gone ahead with a fight in a full stadium for 600 people. He refused to fight. So the fight would be called off. He says, you will sue him for the full stadium capacity and you will win. He says, who is to say people don't come on the eighth round, the ninth round? And he said, you will win. And all advertisers will have to pay you. Then it's for them to sue Ali because your fight didn't eventuate. They don't have to pay you because your contract is for the fight. Right. And that's when I realized in life, no matter how bright you think you are or how smart your mind is, experience is something you learn a lot from. Yes. So the so, so we went broke. So you went. <laughs> I was going to say. And then I went back to work for, for a company, which was one of the Hong Kong partners, Alan Chuang's company called the Chuang's Group. Called the Chuang's Group. Right, okay. Yeah. They were number one in flatware, tableware, hollowware. They were the number one suppliers of vinyl silverware in UK in Sheffield. Okay, so we're going from weeks to be, uh, to promotion on stage. And events to, to silverware and amazing. Yeah. So I worked for them. And whilst working for them, I, be, uh, I joined them as an accountant, became the company secretary. I ended up being one of the managing directors of their subsidiaries. In one of the subsidiaries, uh, a man called Willie Purvis, who was the chief accountant of Hong Kong Bank, was on the board. And 18 months into the job, a problem arose. And there was a board meeting, and Uli Purvis was very embarrassed because he's a Hong Kong bank, and he had loaned money to the bank. That's why he sits on the board. And then Uli Purvis said, how come I didn't know about this incident? So I said, well, the discussion was nine months ago. I said, I said if you recall, that whole discussion was done in Cantonese so that you didn't understand. And I could see blood rushing back to his face. You know, he was pale. And he looked at me. He says, thank you, Simon. And the meeting ended. Yes. And the boss sacked me straight away. I was jobless. There was 1975. But in between, I had started operating a, a little budging business, which belonged to that company. So when they sacked me, I went into the budging business, or I intended to go into the budging business, but I didn't have money. So I went to see Willie Purvis. <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me, he says, yes. So I explained to him what I want to do. He said, okay, show me what you have. So I showed him. He says, but just, just to pause there, Simon, why going into the bar, why barging? I just want to understand the fundamentals of what you saw in operating or starting a barging business? Well, it was when I was working for the Chuangs. Yes. He allowed me to start a business. He, he doesn't want to pay you high salary or increment. Yes. You know, I, I, I'm not falling through the story properly. The first year I've come New Year's time, I said, boss, aren't you going to give me an increment? He said, no, in the position you're in, you would have made money. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're in charge of all the purchases of all the, the things that the company needs. He said, aren't you making money? I said, yeah. They, when they offer me, I said, reduce it from the, from the invoice. I forgot that in, I wasn't aware that in Hong Kong, most people will offer you commission 
for all the things that you do for the company. Yes. And it could be 5% to 10%. Right. So he's thinking that I'm buying all the office supplies. I'm getting enough bonus. Yes, with the commission. Yeah, but I've always deducted against the bill. I tell them if you say $5,000, there's uh, $50 in there. I said, or $500 in there. I said, deduct against the bill. And you forfeit the commission. Yeah, because yep. I wasn't aware that it's a practice. So then he said to me, well, you can do some business on your own so long as it doesn't conflict with the group. And that's when a friend of mine says, well, why don't you think budging? And when I look at the budging business at that time, I wasn't thinking in terms of the profit. I was thinking of the scrap value you get from the budge. Because, you know, you, drum, you drop all these heavy rocks and all in it. Sooner or later, the budge will be... So we're talking about barges in Hong Kong? Yes. Yeah, going up and down, which are used for construction, yes. transport materials, yeah. freight, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. We call them dumb budgers. Right, yeah. yes. And that's what you identified as an opportunity to start within this business, a business in barging. So when I went to see Hong Kong Bank, he says, based on those numbers, I can support you. He said, you need a five-year contract. So a guy called Bob, I cannot think of his surname. He's an Australian guy. He was working for Pioneer Concrete. Yes. And so uh, Bob's wife and my wife were friends. So I went to see Bob. I says, help me with this. So he says, Simon, he says, I give everyone else only a year contract. He said, with you, I can give two years contract. Took the two-year contract, went back to Hong Kong Bank. Purvi says, Simon, it doesn't measure up. You've got to come up with a lot of money. He said, you need actually seven years. He says, but I'll do it for five years. So I went back to see Bob. I think that's when I think the audacity of me, you know. I went to see Bob. I said, Bob, I need your help. He said, listen, my boss will kill me. He said, I can't do that. He said, and my boss is here. And he pointed. And I opened the door, went up to, to the boss was Satistan Antico. Right. Satistan Antico happened to be in Hong Kong. He's the boss of Pioneer Australia. Okay. So he was quite taken aback in the sense that you see this, Chinese guy coming at him. I said, excuse me, sir, not to worry. I just need your help. I said, I'm, I'm educated in Australia. So he says, yes, what do you want? I said, I need a contract from Bob, but he says that he cannot do the term slightly change. I think he was in a hurry. He opened the door and he told Bob, help this man. And he left. Then so I said, Bob, I told him what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and you got your five years. Yeah. So you went back to Willie Purvis at, the, at Hong Kong Bank and yeah. said... So he funded the whole lot, 100%. I didn't have to come up with a penny. Wow. Got a contract done. And every week from that uh, contract, I end up with 100 Hong Kong dollars. I built the first batch for $460,000. And shortly after that, you know, the oil crisis that sent steel prices up and all that. Yes. When I went into the business, I was thinking of the scrap value. After seven years, I might get 100000 for for the budge. I yes. wasn't thinking of the income. Yes. Two years later, to build the exact same size of budge was then costing me $1.1 million. So from four sixty up to $1.1 Yeah. Yeah. By then, I already had about seven or eight budges running in one tugboat. And someone offered me, and then I had con on contract another six budges. Uh, by that time, I was serving a few other companies. Yes. We were freighting all the aggregate from Maon Sun, which is what you call the Iron Ore Hill. Yes. From Macau into all the construction sites all around. 
and it was just going non-stop, you know, A, B, B, C, just keep on going. And it was doing reasonably well, and someone came and offered me to take me all out, lock, stock, and barrel for something like uh, 14 or 16 million Hong Kong. How many barges were you running? In total, about 12 on operation and some on orders. Okay. And what year were we here now? Uh, 76. That would have been a lot of money then, Simon. Oh, yeah, Hong Kong dollars. Yeah. Hong Kong dollars, yeah. Right. Still a lot of money. So then I got involved with an Irishman into a public company. So, so just to pause there, we've gone out of the barges very successfully. And w- would it be fair to say that was where you could take a step back and, and assess what you wanted to do in life at that point? Yes, but I, was, I still wanted to. It wasn't an amount where I, I, I thought <laughs> it's going to sustain me for life. Yes, but you, did you go into semi-retirement at that point? Not yet. Not yet, okay. So then I got involved with this Irishman to go into a public company called Medicine Securities. And cut a long story short, I had to fight him because of things that he was trying to do to take the assets into a Canadian company. And I forced him to sell out. So in his selling out, because when I put my money in there, I own about 20% of the company, 18%. He had majority. Uh, but in the dispute, he was forced to sell out, and he sold out, and I sold out. And then I then walked away with probably, at that time, close to 30 million Hong Kong dollars. Right. So I thought, well, I was about 39. And that's where you thought? Yeah. So, and also my, my, my son was growing up. Uh, at that time, my son was already about five years old. I just didn't want him to be educated in Hong Kong. So that, that is fascinating. So this, this last public company was in a way successful. Very yes, successful. successful. Very successful. You mentioned your son and he, and he was five years he old. Five years and old. And so, so life had changed a little bit in that regard. Here you are with your, your wife at that point has come into your life. That's Ju Sim? Yes. Yes. And how long had you known her at that point? I knew her, her family, because her brothers were my schoolmates. Right. But I met her when we were in London. Yes, when you were working for the week. For the week company. She yeah. came to visit. Right. <laughs> and then we became friends. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and then so your son Ryan was five at that point. Yeah, he was born in Hong Kong. And then, we, and then Cheryl had just been born. Cheryl, yes. So my wife says, well, school, you know. So we didn't. We wanted the the education system that I was used to in yes. Malaysia. So we went back to Malaysia. And I was happy to retire. And I was doing small, helping friends start small business. And the amount I had was quite a sizable amount. And I, I was doing, I think, to be honest, nothing useful. You know, just investing in the market and nothing useful. Then one day... When I got back from what I normally do, my wife says, you better read this. I said, well, this is what your son think of you. And I read this little essay he had written. And by then, I think Ryan was about eight, I think. Yes. Eight or nine. I think. And he says, my dad, my father says he's an accountant, but he has no office. Every morning he leaves the house 
and he goes to this club called the Chinese Recreation Club. I'm aware that they play mahjong and they play cards and all that there. And then he comes home every day at five. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife says, you better do something with your life. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in one of those, yeah. So, so this was a catalyst for you to start looking at other things. Okay. Now, my understanding is you would still, you, you kept your, your love of traveling intact and you used to come back to Perth for some holidays. Yes. And after I left Hong Kong, every school holidays, I'll bring the kids down here for, for the summer holidays. Yes. Yeah. And we'd rent a house so that it's like living in Australia. Yes. And this is the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And the kids love it because I guess any place where you're on holiday, you like it, but they love it here because it's total freedom. They can move around. Yes. I would take them to the foreshore to fish, that kind of thing. Yes. And whereas in Malaysia, you don't have that kind of thing. So one day, the, 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 my son said, Dad, why do we have to go back to Malaysia? Why don't we stay in this country? <laughs> yeah, I like holidays, Dad. Yeah, that, that started our, uh, the, the mind ticking, yeah. So let's start. And for the listener, we've now gone through an overview of Simon's background and what a background it is. It's very colourful and it's such an amazing insight into a life but life begins again in your your relationship with western australia with the stock market and with listed companies here and and you then over time formulate some very strong relationships and friendships and have experienced some pretty serious success but it doesn't come easy and and this is where i'd like to sort of start how you started to love the gold mining industry and and that sort of thing well in one of those holidays I came down, a friend of mine who was the chairman of PNO Asia in Singapore rang me and said, Simon, do you have time to go and look at a gold mine? I says, I'm leaving on Sunday. This was on a, on a Friday when he called me. I said, I'm leaving on Sunday. He says, no, if you're willing, he said, I'll call the people to call you. I received a phone call that same evening on Friday. So Saturday, they took me up to Marvelock and showed us the mine that was under a company called Great Victoria Gold. We walk around for an hour, and I said, when are you showing me the mine? And he says, you've been walking all over it. I looked at him. We went, then we flew back to Perth from Southern Cross in that little plane. As soon as I got back to the Malin Hotel then, which is now the Hyatt, I rang Peter Grossi. I said, Peter, I said, I think you're being had. I said, he said you've been sh walking around for an hour. I don't see any river. I don't see nobody panning. So he bursts out laughing. You stupid idiot. He says, this is not John Wayne movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then he started to explain to me what mining was. <laughs> I mean, that, that shows you the knowledge I had of mining. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to Singap Singapore that Sunday, and I think the f that same week they came up and did a presentation to us over breakfast and became shareholders of that company called Great Victoria Gold. Yes. And that's when I got into contact with Alan Burns and Derek Gascoigne and all that. From... Adversary 
within a month we became friends and Alan says, Simon, you put four of your guys on the board. There'll be four of us on the board, but we have the chair. I said, sure. A month into that, he said, Simon, why don't you be the MD? Uh, so I became, by default, the managing director of this Great Victoria Go. And as I was saying, I really knew very little. And we had a guy who was the chief engineer who barged into the office the, the second day when I held that position and says, you know bugger all about the industry, you know bugger all about the company, how do you get this job? He said. And I look at him and I said, well, I said, I got friends who own a fair slice of this company. Yes. And they wanted me to be in this position. He says, is it all it takes? I said, unfortunately, this business, that's what it takes. Yeah. So he left the office and I remember my secretary, it was in an open office, so every one office knew what he said to me. And a, a few of the staff said, Mr. Lee, you got to sack him. I said, no. I said, I want to win him over. Instead, the next day he came in to resign. And I said to him, I said, why don't you stay? I said, although I'm Chinese, I may not be a bad book to work for. He says, no. I says, anyway, I said, if you go out, you're unhappy, you can come back. He said, that'll be a bloody day. And he left. Cut a long story short to finish this story. About 16 months later or 18 months later, he came back. By that time, I had already changed the whole, the whole structure. I said, your position is no more there as my two IC. You know, I said, it, you can go in to visit one of my, our other mines. I think it was Grand Spatch where I already had a, a sizable interest. So we went up there. After the first week, the mine major rang me and says, why you send this man? He said, all he do is just pick fights. And call him back. And I said to him, I says, why don't you go out and set a consultancy business? He said, second me. I said, no. I said, go and set up a consultancy business. I said, you'll be good at it. So he left. A year later, he came back with two cases, Don Perignon. He says, how did you know I was good for that? I said, you love telling people what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the rest is history. I mean, it's done very well. And yeah. very well. Yeah. Uh, so like, say, from Great Vic, during Great Vic, we had a lot of problems. And like I said, I knew very little. I had a guy who, till today, is a very good friend of mine called Frank Ferguson. He said to me, there's a metallurgy company in Kalgoorlie. The guy there, Nick Jojeta, is very good. So he brought Nick up to help us solve our problem. And Nick, Nick was based in Kalgoorlie, running his own company. He ran his company called GMS. Yes. Goldfield Metallurgical Services. And Nick solved our problem. Then I, we turned Great Vic around. At about the same time, Yossi Gilbert, who is being also one of our shareholders, called me to his office in West Perth and said, Simon, what, what, what did you do? Uh, how did you turn it around? I said, I was just lucky. I had another coffee and he says, no, tell me the truth. What did you do? I said, no, I was just lucky. He says, is, is that all? I said, yeah. He said, look, this is Australia. You want people to support you? You're going to think of something you did that turned the company around. He says, people don't back you just because you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's a long story, right? So that finished. 
But then, can if I could just pause there? This is your your relationship with Frank, and then your introduction to to Nick at that point was the start of you know a long history of 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 a relationship that's been very strong over a long period of time. Yes, and Nick was an integral part of that turnaround with Great Vic Gold. Not really. He only just came in to give one advice. Okay. But it's just because to me, if someone can solve a simple problem, that person probably is worth developing. Yes. And as I said earlier, I really don't know anything about mining. Yes, yes. So people are wondering how then I got into mining. I think, like I said, this great big thing was like inherited to an investment, loose investment. Yes. And then I got hold of Nick because, like I said, a lot of people who are my adversary end up being friends. Yes. As you know, during that time, uh, there were a lot of entrepreneurs and they found me. And I guess they found me because I was one of those who found it very difficult to say no. When, right. when someone approached you and I've got funding to do something, I do it. Which I digress a little bit uh, to, to, to on what I said because, you know, Stan Perrin. Yes. Stan had met me, I think, 86 or whatever. Then about 88 at some cocktail, Stan Perrin came up to me. Hey, Simon, he said, how's your English? I says, okay. He says, how do you pronounce N-O? I said, no. So it's once again, how you pronounce N-O? I said, no. I was getting a little bit agitated. Yes. Third time, he says, how you pronounce it? I said, Stan, where are we going? He said, I want you to learn to pronounce and say the word no. Is everyone tells me that if you need something done, you're going to see Simon, he'll do it. And it was an eye-opener for me Yes, that you can say no. Because at the back of my mind is being a Chinese doing business in Australia, I'm disadvantaged. So I try every and any way to try and make things easier for myself by assisting people along the way, small, big, I've helped a lot of people. Yes. And that's how I inherited the Eastern Petroleum Group because Yorzi came to see me. They needed to get out, so I bought it. Yep. Then in building that group up where I started to end up with a group of about, I think, 15 or 16 public companies, I was called to a meeting in Sydney where the people that approached me to sell some of my holdings to them in the beginning so that they can back me sat me down when they saw the whole thing coming together, that he said exact words to me, Simon, I know you well, I don't have a problem with you. He says, but my backers said to me, we cannot have a Chinese running such a big group. They want you to go. So I came back to Perth and sat down with Alan Trapp, who was with me, to decide whether we fight them or not. This was about June 87. Yes. And we drafted a defense plan where we were warned. But after the weekend where we decided what we can do, I came in on Monday and told Alan Trapp, I said, no, we're not fighting them, we'll sell them. But we need a vehicle to start all over again. So within that group structure, there was a company called Samantha. So just if we can pause there, equity in industry was the holding company? Equity was formed for the purpose of taking Samantha. Right, okay. So Samantha. Why we took Samantha was it had $12 million cash in it. 
and one third of the tenement in Higginsville. So we paid them, I think, about 15 million, I think, 12 million cash and nothing. So that I just needed a vehicle. So we took it out. But to take that out, we had to form equity industry to underwrite the. So equity industry was formed to underwrite the rights issue in um, Samantha. Yes. So equity industry ended up owning at that time, I think, about 60% of Samantha. Right. After that happened, I looked for Nick Jojeda to come and join me. They had then gone to do some project in Koba and all that. So I approached Nick. Nick says, I can't join you. I got uh, my lab to run. So I says, surely it's easier to come and work for me. He said, no, but I got my own business. Yes. I said, how much is your business worth? So he says, a million. I said, I'll buy it. And I said, but I issue shares because I want you to come and work in the company. So he said, two days later, no, a day later, he came back to me. He said, I, I, I can't. He said, I need cash. I said, why? He said, my partner, I have a partner who owns 50%. He wants cash. I said, okay, I give you half a million cash, half a million in shares, and the, the share must go to you. And he agreed. And that's how then Samantha owned, uh, I think, I can't remember whether it's Samantha that owned GMS or Equity Industry that owned GMS. Yes. It must be Samantha because I issued him Samantha shares. And I was the chairman in MD. Nick was still based in Kalgoorlie at the time. So Nick then, after six months or a year later, he said to me, he said, Simon, you're holding two positions. Why don't uh, you try me out? So I said, okay. I said, you be the MD, but you're only in charge of the mining site. Every other aspect is handled by me. And it worked very well. And to Nick's credit, he's also very honest and very dedicated. And to the extent where... A lot of decision I let him make, and we grew. When we sold out, everybody went their own way. And I called Nick. I says, "Look, Nick, you and me, we have made enough from Samantha. It's about the the team haven't got enough. Let's start another one." So I said, "We we'll put together some money, a seed company, so we form Equigol, and Equigol was one part." Equi was one part of equity. Yes. So equi, gold, cement, gold, so it became equi gold. And then we put together $20 million. And I told Nick, whatever the boys want to put, they put whatever the balance you and me will take up, half each. And to our surprise, those boys all came up with $12 million. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so him and me were living with $4 million only. But it was good, so... We're looking for projects. Then Nikovic rang me to say he wants me to be his partner in Kakaloka. I listened to the, the thing. I look at the thing. I was I quite like it then because by then I have starting to get a semblance and understanding a bit of mining it. Yes. So I says, why don't you put this into Equigold? He said, no, I want you to be my partner. I says, it's the same. I said, it's the same group. I said, with me, I still bring them in. So I set him up with Nick Jojeda to have a meeting and we concluded that 50% of the thing is we, we get in and become his partner. Yeah. And then the rest is history here for it through what happened in uh, Samantha after that. Yeah. It was a phenomenally successful company, Equigold. Well, to the point where you know, that relationship with Nick continued, Nick, you introduced 
which then flows onto your role with Emerald. That's where Morgan Hart, Ross Stanley, Mick Evans became involved. Yes. After Equigol, I moved to Singapore to help some friends. But just to pause there, Simon, Equigold was bought by Lahir Gold for $1.1 billion from a $20 million start. Yes, $20 million start, but actually by the time we went public, we had already put about $40 million in there. Yeah. Still not bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What Sa- same with uh, Samantha also. We went for about $700 million and then Equigold about $1.1 but. By the time they sold Equigold, I was already in Singapore helping other people. And to their credit, when they went into Regis, they thought of me. They said, Simon, we're doing this. You're not on the board, you're not with us, but we want you to take some shares. So I was a, a sizable investor in Regis. Regis as well. So so just if we could just talk about, and I alluded to this earlier, but you know some of these relationships... Who were the guys that became the nucleus of Equigold? And you've got Regis and you've got Emerald. Yeah, well, the, the first lot of key people were Nick, myself, Glenn Evans, Frank Ferguson, and Rob Mitchell. Right. Then we brought in the second lot, which is Mark Clark. Yes. Morgan Hart. Yes. Were the other two. Yes. And... When Morgan decided he wanted to start Emerald, he gave me a call. He said, Simon, I want you to come and join me in this little company I'm taking over and you be the chairman and take some shares. I hesitated for a moment because I had really wanted out already. Then I said, but I'm based in Singapore. He says, yeah, I, I need your uh, sense of uh, commitment in helping the company. So I said, yes. So he said he also got Ross Stanley involved. So both him, me, and Ross put money in, into the fresh company. And to Morgan's credit, because I know him, he's a very dedicated person. He's not only dedicated, I think he's very honest. He doesn't beat around the bush. Yes. So I was quite happy, although I was based in Singapore, to be the chair. I think it's nothing worse than being a chairman of a company where if your your MD doesn't tell you all the problems. Yes. And he has this relationship with me where he would tell me the problems. And then we try and and solve it. I think that's very important, the relationship between chairman and MD. So for the listener, just so that everyone is on the same page, with regards to Simon's relationship with Morgan Hart, Morgan Hart is the... Managing Director of Emerald Resources, which was the new company that Simon was chair of, invited by Morgan to participate or be involved. At first, when he asked me, I thought, well, I can give him one or two years before I knew it. Eight years has gone by. Well, you know, it's a, what a story that has just been. This is your third company in terms of the Western Australian mining space where you've been taking it from a, from a low market capitalization to what has been a market capitalization in excess or you know in the high hundreds of millions to over a billion in the case of emerald with regards to that the way you've been able to evolve success in your mining companies what what has been the key formulas and and i'll go back to yossi saying oh it's just it's not luck (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I I think if I credit myself, I would say I try and bring the best out of all the people, key people that work for with me. I think the the best way to put it is to talk to all those that work with me, and I think that the 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 sense that come out of them is that I brought into the group a lot of ethical issues for them to behave in a manner that is beneficial to them and to everyone that works for them and with them. And that's a legacy I like to think that the boys think of me. It's quite something when you if we could just maybe go back to your grandmother. I know I know in one of the things that you told me when we were having a chat was that your grandmother would say to you Simon, everyone who comes into contact with you must benefit from meeting you. I thought that was quite important. Yeah, I guess the the two things she tells me is honesty is something that you must make it second nature. And she said to me, she says, at a young age, when I talk about honesty, she says, you think you're honest. She says, but you don't really know you're honest until you're in a position to take advantage of your position, steal or whatever, and you don't do it. And she says, if you don't do it because you're afraid of you being caught, that still doesn't prove you're honest. It's only when you know you can take advantage and you don't do it even though you won't be caught. Then you can pat yourself on the back and say you're honest. So with that mantra, I try to live as much as I can of what she says. And of course, in living with that mantra, you lose a lot of opportunity in business because sometimes some businesses have got moral issues, got ethical issues. Yes. So you've got to pass them up. Yes. And the other matter is actually a self-inspired uh, thing. I like to think that people that come true with me in my life with a meet have benefited from it. And I think I have achieved that with that team in Samantha. Uh, the financial reward aside, the legacy that you've left, and I know that because it's very fresh in terms of you having just stepped down as chair of Emerald Resources and your, your recent retirement function. And I know talking from that perspective, there's a lot of fondness and a lot of reflection and gratitude that comes with your role that's been played at Emerald. And I think that probably gives us a bit of an insight into the, the way you've carried yourself for so many years, Simon. Uh, thank you very much. I think on the business side, I'm happy with what I've done. And the most important thing is I was not the only person that came out of all the companies with money. All the senior executives all benefited from it. And that's because all of my company that I built and ran were taken over, so everybody had an exit price that they can go at the same time. Just fantastic. Simon, part of your life has been very important to you. If we go back in time a little bit, the career that path that you've forged has been incredibly successful and rewarding in both relationships and financially, and also that reward from taking a business and building it and then being acquired. And we've heard your history over those periods of time. 
one of the legacy things that have come out of that has been you set up a foundation back in 1993, which was a pioneering thing to do back then. It was called the Simon Lee Foundation. And it was one of the first in Western Australia. Do you want to just give us a little bit of an insight into your foundation and why you started it to begin with? Yeah, I think it's quite useful to, to talk about it. From 85, 86, I was already doing a lot of little community donations here and there in community work. Then it was Sir Charles Court, whom I have, I think, a special relationship with, and he had a, I think, if I may say so, a, a, a fond liking of me. He was at some hospice place, and he saw my name on the board, donated by, by me. And he asked me, when did you do this? And how? I said, well, the people approached me and said they needed so much money, so I gave them the money. And he said, there's no fanfare, no news about it. I said, no. I said, I, I do quite a few of those things. He then sat me down and he said, Simon, you owe it to people like you living in Australia to be seen to be doing good contributing back to society. He says, you should form a foundation. And he says, I'll help you with it. I'll even come on the board to help you. And that's how the foundation was formed. And he then said to me, your foundation shouldn't do all and sundry. It should concentrate on areas where it's a good cause, it's a charitable cause, but it doesn't touch people hard where it's difficult for them to raise money. Those are the things that you must support. Right. And, and that's how the foundation was formed. Well, in 1993, and, and I hope you don't mind, but the contributions you've made are enormous. I can just list a few of them, but I'm sure I don't even get close. But Youth Focus, Perth Children's Hospital Foundation, WA Ballet, Telethon Kids Institute, the Simon Lee Foundation, Asian Institute of Contemporary Art, and the West Australian Symphony Orchestra. But there's other things like... For example, the Chinese Gardens of Remembrance at the Hannon North Tourist Mine in Kalgoorlie is not widely known that your foundation funded the construction of the gardens in 2001 and then further funded a refurbishment in 2018 and a great celebration of Chinese-Australian mining heritage. Scholarships at the Perth Modern School for something like the past 30 years, Simon? Yes, I think that's, that's a, uh, one of the the thing that uh, Sir Charles got me to do. And I'm very grateful for that because we've produced some interesting people. One, oh. of, one of them became the uh, conductor of the Chicago Philharmonic. <laughs> Is that uh, right? Yes. And in his interview, they asked him about his career and he made one statement. Without the Simon Lee Foundation, I'm nowhere I am today. Oh, yeah. How wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you must pinch yourself. Yeah, yeah. 30 years you've provided scholarships for Perth Mod. Founded the Youth Leadership Scholarship at Curtin University? Yes, I was the first to do that. Yes. With Sir Charles. Um, and after the f first five years, I think the UC approached us and said that. West Farmers wanted to do that. Uh, we're prepared to give it to West Farmers to do that. And we said yes. Oh, and then 
you're also a significant contributor to the Fiona Stanley Foundation. Well, in fact, uh, I personally funded the formation of it. Yes. Planted the idea, put up the money to get the foundation started, yeah. Simon, these things are such a massive contribution to, to the community, which I know that's what the stated objective was at the start, but your provision of opportunity for um, the community, but people to embrace their, their skill sets and to be able to let them grow and, and have, a, have an opportunity in life. It must, must be an amazing uh, feeling to be able to look at this objectively and see what you've contributed. Yes, at this age, yes. Uh, I just want to relate one of the other things I did. You know, when the government put me as chairman of the Perth Theatre Trust, which is the parent body of all the performing arts, the symphony, the orchestra, whatever, and uh, uh, Her Majesty Theatre all come under the Perth Theatre Trust. I think the first week... I, I held that position. I had phone calls from some ladies I don't even know. And what stuck in my mind was one of the ladies said to me, Mr. Lee, you are Chinese Lee. What do you know about our culture for you to take this position? Of course, you were immediately taken aback, but good thing my mind <laughs> reacted very quickly. I said to her, I said, I promise you one thing. At the end of my term, I'll definitely know more than what I know today. Yes. And there was like a huh on the other side and the phone hung up. At the end of that first year, there was a, this big function where all the bodies come together and it was uh, at the at the, at the, the, the big hall on, on, Hayes, on St. George's Terrace. And these four ladies came up to me and said, Miss Lee, I want to shake your hand. So I shook my hand. The next one says, I'll shake your hand, shake your hands. And they said to me, it says, you don't recognize, remember us or recognize us. I said, please help me. I said, uh, I said, I beg your pardon. I said, I meet so many people. I said, please help me. He said, we were the ladies rang to abuse you. <laughs> <laughs> She says, and she says, we want to shake your hand because we have been told by all the division that you've done a good job. And I said to her, without thinking, I said, oh, good, now I can resign. And I did resign. And Richard Court, then was the premier, was quite upset. He said, why did you resign? It was difficult to put you there. Yes. I, I, I wasn't thinking. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, that's one regret yes. that I, I, I did. The other funny thing is when I was approached to be chairman of the Museum Foundation, the delegation came to see me at my office and said, we want uh, you to consider being the chairman of the Museum Foundation. I said, what, what does it entail? When they told me what it entailed, I immediately says uh, no to them. Then they said, we want you to consider, we think you are the appropriate person. Then I said to them, I said, I'll only take that job if you can get Sir Charles to be the patron. And they burst out laughing. They said, did you speak to Sir Charles? I said, no. He said, we saw Sir Charles this morning. (laughs) Sir Charles said, 
I won't take that position unless Simon is the <laughs> chairman. <laughs> it's very odd. Yeah, because I think both of us knew what that position entailed. Yes, yes. I saw immediately it needs the government's uh, help. And I thought, well, Sir Charles being the patron will help a lot. <laughs> that would help. And Sir Charles probably realized me with no political affiliation would be the right person where to approach the government. <laughs> oh, you've given so much, Simon, and this is just another part of what has been a fascinating career. I just want to touch on other, some of your other roles. Board member of Austrade for nine to ten years, second longest serving member. Chair, as we've talked about, WA Australian Museum Foundation, seats on the Murdoch, Murdoch University Senate. State Government, uh, Asia Business Council, and the Sir Charles Gardner Hospital, to name a few. I also wanted to just talk about other extracurricular business activities like, for example, you were the owner of the Matilda Bay Brewing, uh, makers of Redback Dog Bolter and other fine ales. <laughs> that, that again by default. <laughs> and they needed money. And I was approached. I think that maybe that's one of those things where in helping someone, it ended helping me. I didn't talk about when Bangwest called my loan. Bangwest called my loan in December to be paid on the 31st of December. And with Christmas all in between. This was relating to Matilda Bay, was it? No, no. This no. was the loan that equity industry had with them. Right. And I had, at that time, two major assets. One was Samantha, that was at that time still in its embryo stage, had just come going into production. Yes. And my holding in Matilda Bay. If I didn't have Matilda Bay, they would have probably sold my Samantha shares, I presume, you know, they foreclosed. They'll sell your main asset. So lucky I had Matilda Bay that I said I own it by default to help help the company end up being an asset that I could that, that them sell to uh, elders. So Foster's bought the whole of the Matilda Bay thing, and then I had the money to pay uh, Bankwest. <laughs> Goodness. There's a sliding door moment. Yeah. It was not a happy moment, but that's, those are the things that happen. And what's, what's ironic is I end up being on the board of Bankwest. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? <laughs> oh, look, there's probably so many things I've missed out in, these, in your career, Simon. Your reach and your, your impact has been so phenomenal. And during the crisis we had always with Asia, like during the Vang Tongren years, I accompanied almost every premier on the trips to Asia. Well, I was just going to ask that. Growing up in Australian business, being born in Malaysia, came with its challenges. And you've given a couple of examples of that, whether in mining or in other roles. But you were the major driver behind the establishment of the Western Australian Chinese Chamber of Commerce in 1987. And you became the second president of the organisation in 1991, and you were president for some nine years. It's noted that now you're the you're currently the chamber patron and the honorary and a, an honorary president. I was looking through this organisation, and 
there was just a quote I'd like for the listeners just to put some perspective on it. In 1991, this honorary position in the chamber was later passed to the vice president, Dr. Simon Lee. So that was when the previous president had decided to step down. In Dr. Lee's time as president, the chamber formed a trust that acquired a new home on Hay Street, West Perth. In addition to acquiring a new home for the chamber, Dr. Lee was very much sought after and became one of the most influential business people in Australia. He was given high awards for his works, including becoming an Officer of the Order of Australia. In spite of his busy schedule, Dr. Lee contributed to the local community and was involved in many positions, and the Chamber was surely benefited from his activism. There's things that come out of this. First, that was that you founded the Chinese Chamber of Commerce. The second is the era of the Van Tongren era, which you were talking about. But then, thirdly, all of the work that you did in this area, your ongoing engagement advice to state and federal politics on Australia-Asia relations led to your Advance Australia Award for your contribution to commerce and industry in 1993 and then awarded that Officer of the Order of Australia, AO, in 1994 for service to the development of Australian-Asia trade relations and to the Chinese community. Yeah, it started with Carmen Lawrence. Right. And some are very good, some very bad, but the one I had with Carmen Lawrence was really, really good because I go predominantly as a non-government servant. Yes. And I'm not in the official uh, delegates. We were in Singapore and we were going to meet the present Prime Minister of Singapore, Li Xianglong, who was then the deputy. So the, the, the night before, we were saying who was going and the, gov- the government secretary said, Simon is not coming. So Carmen says, why not? He says, he's not on the official list. And Carmen says, well, he's with us. So it's coming. So, so when we broke off, Carmen says, see you tomorrow morning downstairs. When we got downstairs, Carmen said, Simon, you're coming in my car. That's <laughs> 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 That stopped any discussion, you know. <laughs> and I was very grateful to her because that was my first trip, you know. And since then, I've gone with every of the ministers that went up to either Hong Kong or Singapore or Malaysia. And I've always paid my way because I didn't want any problems of conflict. Yes. So it's a volunteering thing, yeah. And if you ask me what are some of the things that I've done which I am proud of, is during the recalcitrant years between Malaysia and Australia, I was approached by a group of business people and in Malaysia to see whether I could broker a meeting between Keating and Mahathir. The opposition came at the uh, EPEC meeting in Bali. Right. So they wanted me to organize it so that the media and nobody knows about it and nobody carry baggage with all the news saying that, uh, Mr. Kidding, you must bring this up or whatever. Yes. And same in Malaysia. So I was very conscious of it. I didn't want, in case one person say no, one of the prime ministers say no, it would be embarrassing for the other. Yes. 
So although I knew Mahate and I also knew Keating, both personally, I used John Dawkins uh, for Australia to contact with Keating. Yes. I used Tundaim in Malaysia to contact with Mahate. Both sides came and said yes. So we said, well, when you meet, if it's good, call a press conference. If you're not good, just go your separate ways. Yes. It was a very good meeting. So they called a press conference. And there was a lot of write-up in the papers and all that. Uh, a lot of people claiming that they were behind it and all the success of it. And it was then that uh, Keating office rang me and said, Simon, this time you let people know it's you. Is that right? Yeah. So Mark Drummond at that time was with the West Australian. He rang me. He said, Simon, he said, I'm reading all this. It doesn't sound quite right, he said. The, the, the news coming. I said, if anyone knows who arranged it, it must, you should know. He said, who is it? <laughs> so so I, said, I said to Drummond, I said, if I tell you, you cannot mention his name. So he says, sure. I said, you're talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Drummond then wrote an article in the West. He says, uh, uh, Little Bird mentioned to him that it was a uh, Malaysian Chinese person doing mining in Australia who arranged it. And at the time, I was the only one. <laughs> so he did it without naming me. <laughs> uh, so f that, that I was very happy because it, it was a good outcome. You know? Yes. The Chinese Chamber of Commerce has a very important role to play. And you, you've, you've developed, and that, that has developed over many, many years. Maybe for the listener, just give us an insight into that. Well, why we formed the Chinese Chamber is what I'm going to say may not, people may not be happy to hear, is that I found that a lot of Chinese business people coming into Australia to do business were taken advantage of. And there's no recourse. Uh, they're all embarrassed, keep it to themselves. And I was one of those victims. So I thought I must have a platform where people can come collectively and voice their disadvantages and maybe presented disadvantage in a collective way. And that's how the uh, one of the object of the, ch the chamber. The other object of the chamber is drawing non-Chinese Australian as members so that we have the exposure and for both sides to learn from each other. Yes. And when we formed it, even C uh, CBA, uh, National Bank, BHP and all were members and they're very supportive and at that time we had the coffee shop forum <clears throat> almost every prime minister or prime minister to be came and speak at our forum uh, even overseas uh, ministers or politicians when they come to Perth speak at the forum it's called the coffee shop forum it was very successful for that 10 odd years we had it. Yes. The Chinese Chamber had a lot of support from uh, the non-Chinese community. Unfortunately, over these last few years, it's lacking again, yes. the support. Uh, hopefully with the new president just come in, a guy called Tony Chong, he has the personality to to bring it again into it, its good old days, yeah. Yes. 
And of course, since since then, there are so many other associations being formed. And when there are too many, it's very difficult to harness all the energy. Yes. Your your award to reflect on that your award for or you know, the Advance Australia Award for contribution to commerce and industry, and then your officer of the Order of Australia in 1994 for service to the development of Australian-Asia trade relations and to the Chinese community must have been an extremely rewarding or, or it must have been a proud moment, was it? Uh, I would I definitely have to say yes, but you're also humbling in, this, in the sense that the things that you do, the government appreciate it. And I think that kind of work is forever needed. Yes, I think it's needed even more now, uh, with all the media hype on painting negative news about relationship between Australia and a good part of Asia. I- individuals' uh, interactions are very important. It's just like you and me. If we do not, we have not met, we wouldn't have the understanding of each other. Yes. And that's where I think even on an international basis, when I read in the other press where we said the leaders of China are not meeting with the leaders of Australia, I find it very depressing. Mm. Because when you meet, you're surely going to see at least one good quality in that person. Yes. And that and then helps you to overcome all the, the negativity that's circulating. You see. I'm sure that you've had a role to play over the years in terms of facilitating those conversations at, at high levels. Yes, but I haven't done any for the last 20 years now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you go back. Although when I was based in Singapore, together with the Singapore foreign minister, ex-foreign minister, we were, both of us were lay advisor to Colin Barnett in Singapore. Right. I just and, look at and we decided to be uh, what you call lay lay advisors because we don't want to be paid. Yes. And by not being paid, you're not told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I just look at that. You know, you must have had an enormous role back in in those sort of early, you know, late eighties, early to mid nineties in that in this particular area of your life. When you look at the the separate parts of your life and just flowing on from that. You know, in terms of your career and and your and what you've done with your foundation and your contribution to the Australian and Chinese communities and bringing them together, you know, there's lots of things that you could take out of that. But when you think about Western Australia now, what you must be very fond memories in terms of what you've been able to achieve in this state where you came down originally to study accounting <laughs> on a boat yeah. where you, you managed to scrape and scrap together the funds to come down and look at look at what you've achieved. Well, I think that five years in Perth defines my life in the sense that there were the years where you absorb new things, you absorb new culture, you absorb all the friendship that you get. I think in the 60s, we were very, very welcome. Yes. A lot of uh, church group were organized uh, 
functions for all of us overseas students. That is for you as an individual whether you take advantage and build friendship. Yes. Uh, people just cannot bring a friend so you be friends. It's for you to be able to develop that. So that to me w- was very good. And most people, I guess, at that time knew you were only a student, so they're very welcoming. I guess had, had it been different, I, wouldn't, I, I cannot sort of explain whether it had been different. But for me, they were the best years I had, carefree years where although you had no money, you never had a worry. Yes. Because, you know, next month, the family will send you a check for your next month's <laughs> leaving. Uh, and some of the very f- things that uh, probably don't happen in Malaysia, you know, like I was in my final year. That's the year I fell in and out of love with an Aussie girl. First love. And I was tr- totally uh, devastated. I skipped lectures and all that and didn't go to lectures. And I remember Mr. Allen, my uh, class lecturer, called a friend of mine called Michael Harris. He said, you go and see Lee and tell him to buck up. Yep. And tell him this. I know he comes from a poor family. I know he's supported by his family. He can fail his exam, but what is his obligation? And Michael Harris, on his way home, stopped at my, uh, the house I was staying in and told me exactly what Alan said. I guess it's like someone slapped you on the face and wake you up from your sleep. Yep. I started to attend lectures, and Michael Harris, I, he's, he lives in Narigin. I think he practiced in Narigin as an accountant. He was very good at Simon. These are all my notes. You sit for one, one week or one month, he said, but you must give it to me he said, in two months, that means exam. And I was very fortunate within that two, three weeks, I was able to catch up the whole year's. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Michael Harris. Yeah. <laughs> I was very, very lucky. So, so that's it. You asked me what are the things. Are, those are the little things. And the other thing is, friends always ask me, you're not living in Singapore. You've lived in many continents in the world. Where do you consider home? I said, it's a question that's hard to answer. We never have a choice of where we are born. Yes. Then we work everywhere else. But I did tell my daughter that if my final day come, I want to be buried in birth. So if you understand my statement, it's birth is my home. Thanks for sharing, Simon. I can see for the listener in your body language and your eyes that genuinely means a lot to you. Thank you. We could talk for hours, but there are some things, Simon, that it's so great to hear the passion that you have for all the things that you've done. But for the everyday investor and for the the people that look at what you've done and what you've achieved and, and the way you've gone about it and some just some general questions. You are an entrepreneur and you've been able to build businesses from early from your early days right through. When you look at a business and you look at risk, how do you define your risk? <laughs> I I'm laughing because I'm not your traditional uh 
business evaluator, I, whenever I approach, I'm approached by people, I tend to try and analyze that person. Yes. I have this capacity in me to withstand losses. And I don't have a problem losing money on my investment if it's the business that go bad. But I get very angry with myself if the funds that I put in are misused. Yes. So whenever I go into a lot of businesses where people approach me whom I hardly know, I try to analyze the character. And for me, in a lot of business that I put my money in, my mind tells me 90% you're going to lose money. Only one in 10 you're going to make money. So the, 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 whereas most business people, they calculate it's a 90% they're going to make money. For me, when I invest with people, my mind tells me 90% you're going to lose money. So I use that evaluation of the person. Uh, it's, 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 I won't mention the name of a person. I mean, there's a guy that came to see me back in the early 90s to joint venture with him. And he was informed by someone that I'm very critical on ethical manners and all that. So he sat down for that one and a half hours when my secretary being a coffee, he says, thank you, this whole thing. And I said, I, he was putting me through the gates. Right? Yes, yes. Then in my mind, I'm going to put the money in. Then I said, let's go for lunch. I said, I'm happy to put my money in. Let's go for lunch. As we walk out of my uh, office, he walked past. He didn't, he didn't bother to hold the door. When the leaf came, he just walked in. And when we got out, he just walked out. And I think to myself, then that's out of character of yes. what he has been trying to portray. Yes. Then, then it dawned on me I shouldn't put money and I didn't. And it was the right decision because that guy... Yeah, anyway, I won't mention who. No, 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 sure. But the, the, as an illustration. So, yeah, so that's what I do. And funny thing, believe it or not, most of the time when I invest in business outside the mining domain is to help someone cross a bridge. So you essentially are saying you know, that, that the, the nature of the person is critical to your decision-making. And that's why when, when Morgan asked me to come out of retirement to help him, I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. for me, there's no, no, no uh, a scientific method. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. And thank you. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and, and you, you, you have answered in many ways, is, the, is your principles in life. You know, you're very strong on principles in terms of the way you've carried yourself through your both business family uh, and your and your philanthropy and the way you've you've been able to carry yourself through this period could you just put a little bit of a expansion on on those principles i think the most important thing for all of us is to have empathy empathy uh, yeah i think where in life after a while you see People become very rich and all that. They forgot their past. Yes. It's something you live through from nothing to something. 
where I think the empathy should be with you. I don't, I don't expect empathy from someone who's born with a silver spoon where from young age he's got everything. That someone had to tell him. You have to cultivate in him. It's, I think this ethical thing, it's, it's a, and morals, it's an individual thing. To somebody, gambling is immoral. To some, someone else, it's not. Yes. So this is very personal. Yes. So I will put it into three things that I always tell my people. I think Nick, Nick knows this. Uh, Nick Georgetta hears it from me quite often. I said, the first question you ask is, is it legal or illegal? If it's illegal, don't think about it. If it's legal, then you ask yourself the next question. Is it moral or immoral? So you say, if it's moral and it's legal, just do it. But if you say it's immoral or unethical, then you ask yourself the third question. Who suffers from your immoral or ethical act. Yes. Then that is for you as an individual to answer yourself. And because at the end of the day, you got to look at yourself in a mirror. Are you happy with the face you're seeing? Yes. Yeah. Because money is not everything. I think uh, if you say, how much is enough? When I was younger, I thought a million was enough. Then when I got my first million, I thought I'll stop. And I did, and I lost almost all of it. And I realized, no, this is not enough. So the next time I set myself in my own mind was 10. When I went past 10, then I says, you don't need any more. So money must be used to do something good. Yes. And it doesn't take big money. To do good. The, the last thing that I did was probably in 2018 that I, I never thought of. I was in Bali for a holiday. The driver that was driving us around, I asked him, how long have you been in this industry? He said, 20 years. I said, you've got a good business. He said, no, I'm only the operator. He says, I work for somebody. I said, you've been 20 years. You've got a lot of clientele because I've referred to him by some friends. I says, why don't you start your own? He says, I need to buy a, one of these vans. I says, how much does the van cost? He says, 22000 the basic one. Yes. So he says, I need 3000 deposit. I says, so? He says, I don't even have 3000 He says, I have a family of four. He says, my salary is barely enough. So I live on tips. And he says, he really only earns about 200 a month. That was on the second day. So on the fourth day of my trip, I told him, I says, why don't you be your own boss? He says, how? I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you $12,000 and then you're going put 10000 on higher purchase and then you pay off the higher purchase. And he was looking at me. He didn't say anything, but he was talking bullshit. You know? Yeah. So that night I texted my friend. I said, I said, send this money. And my friend said, did you lose your money gambling? I said, no, 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 no. I said, I just wanted to do something. So the money came and this man called Kutut, he then went to do, get a van and started doing his business. 
COVID hit, 2021, he sent me a message. He says, Dear Benefactor, <laughs> he says, I've paid off about 2,000. I see oh so much. My, my, my areas are 1,800 or something. He says, can you assist me with the 1,800? So I says, tell me exactly what you owe. Give me the bank paper. So he sent me. He still had about 10,100 left, you know. So he hardly paid anything. He was just paying interest or whatever. Yes. I sent him the money. Instead of 1,800, I sent him the 10,000. I said, you pay off everything. So next thing I know, he's straight in that now. He's bought a, a better car. And he told me, he said, thank you. Now I, I got a proper vehicle. And he says, just to let you know, my whole family prays for you every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a story. Well, I, I relate that story for a purpose. It doesn't need big money. Yes. You see, it has to be something that you do that change a person's life. Now, 21,000 in Australia doesn't change a person's life. But in Bali, it changes life from being a labor worker struggling to now be his own boss where he says he can now earn $1,000 yes. from $200. You see? And that's life-changing for him. Oh. Well, Simon, there's so many stories I think that you can reflect on that are similar to that. You know, over your life. Yes. <laughs> it's just, just another one, which is pretty pretty fantastic. We talked about your your wife, Jusim, earlier, and, and you've got Ryan and Cheryl. You mentioned to me a while ago that um, Ryan is an actor and he featured in Star Wars. <laughs> I think he- <laughs> Yeah, he, he does. He was in Star Wars. He was also in one of the James Bond thing where he was just a walk-on thing. He was always Brad Pitt in some other thing. Um, Brad, Brad Pitt's not a bad one to be in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, he likes Brad Pitt a lot. Yeah. Um, well, like all uh, Chinese uh, people, you want your children to be in business, but that's not what he, he wanted to be. And I accept it. And... That's why in all the business I've developed, I never developed in the sense for continuity. And so mining suited me because you get it to a level, you can sell it off. Yes. That, that, that was probably also by, by circumstances. Yeah. When we first started off trying to amass wealth, I lived on my wife's salary and my salary went into investment. So every... every um, month it was her salary that sustained the, f- the family yes and my money just went into investment yeah. with cheryl has she formed a, a view around finance or what is she doing with herself uh well cheryl when she finished school she worked for uh ey for a while yes did a ca then she went to work in the east for fairfax and then from Fairfax, she went to uh, Bacock and Brown. Oh, Bacock and Brown, yeah. right. Where she said to me she lost all her money because she invested in Bacock and Brown. And I said to her, it's a good thing you lost your own money. And since then, she's been managing the family's money. Yeah. Yes, yes. She's done reasonably well, I think. Oh, great. And she's, she prefers to be a, a parent, so she's a mother rather than working. So you're a grandfather now? Yeah. 
three beautiful girls. Good on you. <laughs> you can see you're pretty excited <laughs> about that. That's great. So, Simon, I just wanted to say it has been wonderful to be able to sit down with you and, and have this conversation. And, you know, what you've had is a very amazingly diverse, inspiring and hugely successful life. And, and it's still going. You've got these wonderful grandchildren and you've, you're still very active in terms of your community and, and also with what you're doing in business. Um, as I said to you at the intro, you came from very humble beginnings and it's just astounding, isn't it, when you think about it, your pay packet in the early days of supporting your family. The respect from your peers uh, and from all your walks in life and the financial success you've experienced through being I think observations are being true to yourself, honesty, understanding your skill set and your your tolerance for risk. And though your tolerance for risk really is quite when talking about that, it's been quite insightful. Your advice from your grandmother, I think, speaks for it all in terms of everyone who comes into contact with you must benefit from meeting you. And we talked about that. It's been a very immense and no doubt very rewarding. So on behalf of Euros Hartley's, Finding the Front, and all the listeners, I know that we'll get a lot out of this, and it has been really, really so great that you could take the time out to join us. So thank you very much. Thank you. And one last parting statement. For anyone wanting to be successful, you must have the ability to cultivate everyone that works with you wanting to make you successful. You alone can make yourself, can't make yourself successful. Yes. Thank you. Very good. Thanks, Simon. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out eurosharleys.com for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.